You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. You can open up your Bibles to the second chapter of Nehemiah. The series that we're in is called Never Give Up. And the title for today's message is Never Give Up Because God is in Control. And if you don't have a a copy of God's Word in front of you, if there's no Bible in your hand right now, I want you to take those hands and put it in the air to to catch the attention of one of the ushers that's coming up and down the aisle right now. We want to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to follow along in God's Word today. We're, We're a portable church. We don't have pews, so we don't have pew Bibles. And so this is the best we can do. So, um... Put your hand up and get a copy of God's word, Nehemiah chapter 2. Never give up because God is in control. Never give up because God is in control. What we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 2 is that that Nehemiah is going to find himself bumping up against four different obstacles, four different opportunities where he needs to make a decision, where he needs to choose, am I going to give up or am I going to move forward by faith? And what propels him forward, what enables him to continue to never give up is belief that God was in control of all of his circumstances. It was true for Nehemiah. It's true for us. The key to never giving up, as we've already looked, the key to never giving up is knowing that God has a plan and knowing that God hears prayer. And now today, the key to never giving up is knowing that God is in control, that he has a plan and hears our prayer and the plan cannot be stopped because God is always in control. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1 says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Verse 2, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Here's the the first obstacle that Nehemiah is is faced with. It's, it's, It's the obstacle of making the request before the king. It's the request of the king. Now as we, as we think back to what happened in chapter 1, Nehemiah had received news from his brother about what was happening in Judah, specifically in Jerusalem, that the walls were torn down, the people were in disgrace and discouraged and vulnerable. Nehemiah sat down and wept and mourned. He prayed, he fasted. It said all of this started in the month of Kislev. And now in chapter 2 verse 1, we're told it's the month of Nisan. And so there's, th- th- those are four months apart. And we don't know if it was, you know, early on in the month of Kislev and later in the month of Nisan. We don't know exactly when. So we're looking at a distance between him hearing the news and this particular day when the king asks him about why he looks so sad. Somewhere between 100 and 120 days have gone by. 100 or 120 days of Nehemiah asking what he asks. He had his great uh, prayer that was the focus of our week of prayer this past week 
But at the end of verse 11, he prays, give success to your servant today. For at least 100 days, Nehemiah said, give success to your servant today. And God's answer for over 100 days was, not today. Not today. Nehemiah, I love you. Nehemiah, I have a plan. Nehemiah, I hear your prayer. But my answer to your prayer is not today. But then chapter 2, verse 1, is the day where God does respond to his prayer. It says in verse 2, the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Now this is interesting. Uh, We're given a glimpse here into the relationship that Nehemiah had with the king, the king of Persia, the most powerful person on planet earth at the time. First of all, that Nehemiah was the kind of person that, that the king would even bother looking in the face. That Nehemiah is the kind of person that the king would know well enough to to see that he was upset, that he had seen him. Nehemiah would have been present with him at every meal. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Now, some people think that the cupbearer was just this sort of nobody who just was there to to sort of drink and to eat everything to make sure he doesn't get a poison. That that couldn't be further from the truth. The cupbearer was one of the most influential people in the palace because the cupbearer wanted to protect his own life. He wasn't just like, I hope this goes well. I hope I don't die. The, the, the whole role of the cupbearer was to be familiar with everything that was happening at court. All of the coming and going, all the supply chain, all of the deliveries of food, everything that's happening in the kitchen. But not only that, every single, who, every single person who would come to visit the palace. If, is anyone acting strange? Nehemiah would have had his representatives or his sentries all over the palace, watching over. Is anyone acting a little bit unusual? Could there be a plot against the king? He was the main security guard for the king, the cupbearer. And so he knew everything about what was happening with everyone in the palace. And the king knew him well. The king trusted him. Not only did he look Nehemiah in the face, not only was he able to notice that there was something wrong, but also, he says, this is sadness of the heart. The king actually cared about Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah was so effective and so faithful in his job. And he had been spending all of this time waiting for God to work. Over a hundred days of praying, God, let today be the day. And In making this request, Nehemiah had to know that God was in control and that God was telling him to wait. You know, sometimes waiting on God can be really hard, but you know what's harder? Not waiting on God and wishing you had. And so Nehemiah was waiting on God, and then eventually, he didn't even notice, but it started to show on his face. That the anguish that he was feeling, the longing to go and return to Jerusalem, the the desire to, to, to be used by God to solve the problem, he thought he was hiding it well. You see, here's the thing. You had to be happy in the king's presence always, like perma smile. Because to be with the king is a great privilege. And these kings thought about themselves like they were God. And you should be happy to be in his presence always. And so it wasn't like your job where you can just kind of be grumpy with your boss or roll your eyes. That would get you killed. That's why Nehemiah says when the king notices, look at the end of verse 2. Then I was very much afraid. 
This is what I love, though. I get, I don't know if you're, if you're like me, but I get encouraged by strange parts of the Bible. I find that statement, I was very much afraid, very encouraging. I mean, this is Nehemiah. This is the guy who was so courageous, so bold, so assertive, such a great leader. And he admits here in his own memoir that he was very much afraid. Even after praying for four months, you would think that that would have given him some sort of you know, perma-confidence. But no, in the moment, he was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because God was answering his prayer, but clearly he didn't picture it to be answered in this way. Have you ever had that happen? You pray earnestly for something to happen, and then when it happens, you don't expect it. It's like in the book of Acts when they're praying that Peter would get out of prison and they're, they're praying so earnestly and, and he's miraculously freed and he's knocking on the door and they're like, someone go get the door, we're praying. And they're like, no, Peter's here. He's like, no, yeah, he's with us in spirit, but we're praying that he'd be released from prison. No, he is. They're praying so hard, God has already answering that prayer, but he doesn't recognize it. You see, Nehemiah had it pictured in his mind how it was gonna go. He thought he'd be, one day, just have the confidence to ask the king a question. But now, the king is asking him questions. This isn't how he pictured it going down. And so he's got to run an audible here. He's, he's, he, he sees something that, that is, is not what he was expecting. And so he was very much afraid. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was a, a great leader in modern history. He was president of the United States who led them through the Great Depression and also through the Second World War. He knew a lot about courage. He knew a lot about, about fear. And this is what Roosevelt said. He said, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. Leading a nation in a time of war or through, uh, through something as horrible as the Great Depression. There was a lot of fear that Roosevelt would have experienced. And he acknowledged that. But he knew that there was something more important than his fear. Nehemiah was afraid in this moment. And listen, it's not being fearful that's the problem. It's what you do with that fear. Do you allow that fear to, to paralyze you? Or do you do something with that fear because you, asset, you make an assessment that there's something more important. And for Nehemiah, the glory of God, the walls of Jerusalem, the strength of God's people was more important to him than his fear. So verse 3, he, he, he wasn't expecting it to go down this way, so he's rolling with it. The king is asking me questions. So verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? <laughs> Another question. You can tell that Artaxerxes is a, a, a kind of guy who just sort of cuts through it. Let's get right to this. You want something, Nehemiah. I can tell. Okay, so you're sad about your father's graves. You're sad about the city lying in ruin. What is it that you want from me, Nehemiah? And again, think about how afraid he would be. Now this is the moment. Now he's going to ask Artaxerxes if he can go home and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. 
And if you pay attention to the context as we had in this series, that in Ezra chapter four, the reason why the walls of Jerusalem were not rebuilt is because King Artaxerxes made a decree that they should not be rebuilt. And what Nehemiah is about to ask Artaxerxes to do is to completely reverse a decision that he had made before. And Nehemiah knows that, and he was very much afraid. But I love this verse, Psalm, 50, Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. People think that to be a Christian means that you're free from fear means that you should never be afraid. You should never be worried. You should never be anxious. No, no, that's just the reality of life. When, not if I am afraid, but when I am afraid. It's gonna happen. But it says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Look at how Nehemiah put his trust in you. Verse four, the king said to me, what are you requesting? Then it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I'm afraid and so I prayed. That's what Nehemiah did. And there's a lesson here in the request that, that Nehemiah, listen, he had already spent like 100 days praying. You don't think that was enough? Do you think he kind of had it covered? And you know, I can take it from here. I've already prayed. No. Prayer needs to be disciplined, systematic, daily, but it also needs to be spontaneous and in the moment. We need to have, listen, some of us are strong in the spontaneity piece. Some of us are strong in the, the discipline piece. We need to have both in order to have a healthy prayer life. And that's what we see Nehemiah doing here. So here it comes, verse five. I said to the king, notice the respect, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Verse six, and the king said to me, notice the parentheses, the queen sitting beside him, and I don't know, maybe the queen liked Nehemiah, you can just sort of, the king sort of started to talk, and then he looks over at his wife, and you always want to, you know, I have a saying with my friends, AWF, ask wife first. And so he's looking over at his, uh, at his uh, wife, and this, for some reason, Nehemiah chooses to recall that, that the queen was sitting there uh, beside him, and he says, uh, again, he doesn't waste any time. He says, uh, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? He doesn't bother to say yes. He just says, how long will you be gone? And says, so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. There's the answer to his prayer. Nehemiah sees that God is in control. Nehemiah sees that God has, has, has given him the favor that he had been asking for for months. But he doesn't stop there. If you read verse seven, it says, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. Now what's, what we don't notice when we just sort of read this initially is that the way the conversation is going is the king asks Nehemiah a question, Nehemiah answers it. The king asks a question, Nehemiah answers it. But in verse seven, 
Nehemiah speaks to the king unprompted. Nehemiah could have just, you know, taken what he had and run with it. I can't believe I just got permission. I I can't believe I can go back and rebuild. That would have been fine enough. But Nehemiah, in the moment, sensing that God is working, sensing that God is in control, he really goes for it. He swings for the fences here. He says, actually, while we're on the topic, I'd really like a signed letter from you so that when I pass through these different territories that are hostile to Judah, that I could have safe passage. And actually, you know what, this just, you know, one other thing. You know, it's, it's really expensive uh, to, to rebuild a wall. Could, you've got lumber, you've got lumber yards all over your kingdom. Could, I know that Asaph, he, he's the lumber yard closest to Jerusalem. Could you just write me a letter indicating that I could take all of the lumber for free in order to accomplish this project? You see, he really goes for it. He trusts that God is in control and that God is working. It's also interesting too, listen, Nehemiah knew he needed those things. You see, praying and planning are not to be separated. Some of us are good planners, some of us are good prayers. Nehemiah was both. He was on his knees, he was praying for God to work and for God to answer, but he had a notepad right there as God was giving him direction, okay, in order to do this, how am I going to travel there? I'm going to need letters, so he puts that in his notebook. Oh, we're going to need building materials. Maybe he didn't picture himself just asking asking the king, hey, can I have your credit card and take it over to Home Depot? But that's the way it worked out. Can you fund the whole project, all of the material that's needed? He was praying and he was planning. Even look how specific he was. He had details from his brother's report in chapter 1, verse 1. But if you look at chapter 2, verse 8, it says, A letter to Asaph. He knew the name of the guy he had been planning. The keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams, notice this, for the gates of the fortress of the temple. That was a specific fortress that was the main lookout close to the temple. And for the wall of the city, that's obvious, and also for the house that I shall occupy. Nehemiah didn't want to be a burden to the people that he was going to be staying with. He wanted to be there. He wanted to have a place for him to be looked after as well. And so he asked for all of those things. And because God is in control, the end of verse 8 says, and the king granted me what I asked, I love this, for the good hand of my God was upon me. God was in control. Nehemiah didn't get what he asked for because Nehemiah was so tactful and so eloquent and so wise and so winsome in his presentation. Nehemiah got what he asked for because God was in control. And Nehemiah knew that. I love that phrase. The good hand of my God was upon me. So he sets off. Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. So he he goes into the different provinces and they're like, none shall pass. They're like, hey, you got to have some paperwork. And Nehemiah's like, yeah, you're right, man. I should have some sort of authorization of, of some sort. You know, how about like a letter from King Artaxerxes? 
He was just waiting. He was just, you could tell he was just waiting for them to ask for paperwork. He knew that God was in control. Check this out too. At the end of verse nine. Now the king had sent me officers of the army and horsemen. Did Nehemiah ask for officers of the army and horsemen? No, he did not. Did he get it? He did. God is able to give us far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. Nehemiah thought he was swinging for the fences. He thought he was all in, asking for everything he could possibly have in that one moment, and yet God says, ah, there's something more. You're gonna get a military motorcade to escort you on your journey. That's the grace of God. That's evidence that God is in control. Proverbs 21 verse one says that uh, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. What that proverb means is that it's like water in the palm of your hand. And this is the king's heart. And God can turn it however he wants. He can turn it in the direction of no. He can turn it in the direction of yes. It's all up to God because God is in control. And that's what he showed to Nehemiah. And that's what we can see and learn. That we can take risks that we can step out not knowing what will happen to us. Like Esther, who was a contemporary of Nehemiah, if I perish, I perish. I have been raised up for such a time as this. I am going to trust that he will work and believe that he is in control. Verse 10, he shows the paperwork, but it says, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That's some of the um, opposition that we're going to learn more about as we move forward. So the request of the king that God demonstrated how in control he was of Artaxerxes' heart and of Nehemiah's circumstances. Here's the second thing that Nehemiah came up against, the research of the wall. The research of the wall, verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Um, Susa, where he was uh, located, uh, all the way to Jerusalem, it's, it's a little under a thousand miles of travel. That, that's, a, that's an understatement. So I went to Jerusalem. Um, he, he, he couldn't use Uber. Okay, he, he, he couldn't get on, a, get on a plane or a train. There was, there was nothing that could get him there. He had to travel through the desert, set up camp, sleep over, and then continue to move on day after day, a thousand mile journey. No wonder it says that he was there three days of, of probably just rest and recuperation. Then in verse 12, then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart. Love that. God is in control. He puts things into our hearts. He says, I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode, I went out by night. So he's going out at night. He's, he's only bringing a one mount, only one horse or mule. He, why is he doing this? He doesn't want to attract a lot of attention to himself. 
He already got a vibe from Sanballat and Tobiah that they weren't happy that he was there. And he, he didn't want to create a commotion. He knew he already showed up with this, you know, with all these Persian army officers with him, you know, securing the area and that sort of stuff for him. So he decides to do his research, but he does it at night. Verse 13, it says, I went out, again, by night. That's the third time he says, by night. By the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. So he's on the the southern edge of the wall right now that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by, by fire. Then he's coming north to the south side in verse 14. When I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. That's an indication of the extent of the damage. A horse uh, couldn't get through. Either it was, it was the, the, the hole in which he needed to, to, cl- to, to climb through was so small or the, the footing was so unstable because of the rubble. That's how bad it was. Verse 15, then I went up in the night, again, in the night, by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. He didn't, look, he didn't do a, a full circle around the entire city, just the south side and the east side, just getting a sense for an invading army to, uh, to uh, take down Jerusalem. They really only needed to, to knock over a couple of sides of the wall in order to enter into the city. He didn't, he didn't feel the need at that point, at least, to do all of the research. Now, what can we take away from this? Nehemiah knew that God had put something in his heart. That's what it says in verse 12. Nehemiah knew that the good hand of his God was with him. That's what it says in verse 8. But Nehemiah didn't presume that he knew exactly what to do. He knew he needed to do do diligence. We get ourselves into so much trouble when we assume that we know everything about a situation. We see something or hear something happening in our home with our children. We go upstairs and we've already decided whose fault it is and what happened just because we heard a couple of thuds and a cry. Am I the only one that has that happen in their house? That's like, a, that's like an hourly thing. Thud, thud, cry. I, I make massive mistakes as a parent if I go up those stairs assuming that I know what happened. I'm a wise parent if I do my research. If I find out what actually took place before launching into some disciplinary action. When a member, a a friend of ours comes to us and starts to explain their problem and they don't even, barely have the words out of their mouth and we already start solving it for them. That's a huge problem to assume. Listen, we don't know what we don't know. We need to be so careful. Don't assume, oh, God's with me. God's hand is on me. Therefore, I'll just, here, I'm here in Jerusalem. Grab a brick. Let's go. No, he did his research He was careful to understand what it was that God had called him to do. How was this wall built in 52 days? It was built in 52 days 
because Nehemiah spent at least 100 days praying, three days resting, and one night of extensive research. Sometimes when you start slow on the front end, things go a lot faster on the back end. If you start too fast on the front end and press things forward, you'll find that there's no back end. It'll just stop right in front of you. And Nehemiah showed great wisdom in doing that kind of research. Verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. He knew that he was going to have to make an appeal to these people to join him. And that's the, the third obstacle that he was going to have to uh, come up against. He's made the request to the king. He's now done the hard work of researching the wall. And now it's about recruitment of the workforce. He knew that he had to include these other people. Because here, it's a pattern from, from, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That when God puts something into someone's heart... It never just stays in their heart. And when God wants to do a great work through a person, God always plans to include other people. And Nehemiah was wise enough to know that he could not rebuild this wall by himself. That he needed other people. And God forgive us when we think that we can move forward in honoring God and doing the things that he has called us to do. The things that he has put into our hearts thinking that we can just kind of go it alone. Fly solo. That is completely contrary to every movement of God in the Bible and through church history. Sometimes, yes, we do need to stand alone. But you don't need to stand alone for long. God always ensures that there's someone who's standing there with you. And so he knew that there were some people who would have to do the work. Look at verse 17. So now he's going to speak to them. And just picture the, the insecurity that Nehemiah would have. Here he is, you know, the guy who just shows up to the party late and, and telling them, okay, now we're going to rebuild. We've got to remember the context. Two waves of people had already moved home to Jerusalem. The book of Ezra at the beginning describes a leader, Zerubbabel, and he was the first one to lead. And then the, the second half of the book of Ezra is a, another group of people. Ezra was their leader. And they tried to rebuild the wall, and they couldn't. This wasn't a new idea that, hey, I've got to, here's something new. Let's rebuild the wall. They're like, we tried that. It doesn't work. And so Nehemiah, you, you just think the fear, the uncertainty. Are they going to listen to me? I know. Listen, I'm... I'm a descendant of Abraham, I'm Jewish, but I've been living in Persia all my life. Are they going to judge me? Are they going to look at my clothes? Are they going to listen to my accent? Are they not going to respond to me because I'm different from them? But Nehemiah had to overcome that obstacle and had to allow himself to reach out to these people. Now look how, we, look how he begins, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Now, I, uh, I don't know if I would have started like that. Maybe like, hi, I'm Nehemiah. Um, what is, what's your name? Um, never done this before, but here, no, he just, he just, he lays it right out there. But listen, sometimes it just takes an outsider with a little bit of courage 
and maybe a little bit lack of tact to show us how much trouble we're in. Uh, Sometimes we are uh, so absorbed in the picture that we need someone who's outside of the frame to tell us what's happening. Sometimes we're surrounded by trees and we need someone to point out that we're in a forest. And this is why I'm so grateful for uh, the role that small groups play in our church. We are not just a church with small groups, like it's something on the outside, that we are a church of small groups, uh, uh, groups of men getting together, groups of women uh, getting together, mixed groups getting together to spend time in God's word, to spend time in accountability. And I'm so thankful for the people in my small group because they love me, they care about me, but they're standing at a far enough distance that when I start to explain something or something I'm going through or struggling with, they can just say, wait, well, hold up, Ted, what'd you just say? Did, have you, have, Ted, have you thought about this? And I hadn't thought about it, even though it was staring me right in my face. I needed an outside perspective, and that's one of the blessings and the benefits of being involved in a small group. He says, do you see the trouble we are in, notice how he also identifies himself with the people. He doesn't say, do you see the trouble you are in? He says, do you see the trouble we are in? Nehemiah says, this is now our problem. And if a marriage is going to be strong, it's not gonna be that the husband has his problems and the wife has her problems, it's gonna be that the marriage has their problems. That his problems become our problems. That her problems become our problems. The same way a small group is really solidified that when someone shares a prayer request or a need or something that they're really leaning on the Lord for, that we're just not like, I hope that works out for you, all the best. But no, this is now, you have shared this with the group. This is now our problem. There's an identification, a, a unity that is so beautiful in what Nehemiah says here. You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And this is just another picture, another beautiful picture of what Nehemiah is doing for these people really just sets the tone for what Jesus does for us. Nehemiah left a palace in Persia, came all the way, left all of that behind to come to the broken city of Jerusalem. Jesus left his palace in heaven and leaving all of that behind, humbling himself and identifying with us, coming into the brokenness of our lives. And just as Nehemiah identified with with all that had gone wrong in Jerusalem, Jesus on an even greater level identified Jesus looked at our problems and he just didn't say these are, th- those are your problems. He didn't just say those are, those are our problems. Jesus went to the cross and said these are my problems. He completely identified with our sin when he suffered and died. And Jesus entered into our brokenness and died on the cross. He himself became broken so that we could be rebuilt, so that we could receive eternal life. 
And if you haven't made that decision today to have your life rebuilt, you need to understand that Jesus came from you, came for you. He came to die for you, and you can make that decision to become a follower of him by allowing, allowing him to speak to you, to see the trouble that you're in, that your own sin, your own sinful choices have made, and to believe by faith that he died on the cross for you and to commit to follow you, to commit to follow him, sorry. Don't follow you, that will just end bad. And then I love this in verse 18. He says, I told them of the hand of my God. There's the phrase again. The hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. He retold the story. He said, you're never going to believe this, man. I found out from my brother what was happening here. And I was praying. And I thought I knew how it would happen. But then all of a sudden, I didn't even know it. I had a sad face. And the king's like, why, why the long face, dude? And then I started freaking out. I was so afraid. And I said something about my father's grave. I didn't really know what to say. And then, I, and then I prayed. And then he just said, hey, what are you requesting? And then so I just went for it. And then after he said yes, I just said, hey, can I have your credit card? And he's like, yeah. And they're like, no way. It's like, yeah. He told them the story. We need to tell each other our stories of how God's good hand is on us. And, and then he gives them specific action. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. The good work. For some of you, good work is an oxymoron. Those two words don't belong together. How can work be good? Work is the thing I do to do good things. I, once the work is over, then I can start to do good things like hanging out and recreation and rest and all that stuff. My work is not good. Work is not good. Well, you need to understand. You need to understand that you were created for work. The first human being that was ever created was designed to work. It says in Genesis 2.15, the paradise of Eden was a workplace. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. We were created to work. We all know what happened in the Garden of Eden. There was a, there was a fall. There was disobedience from God. And because of that, there was a curse, a curse on the land. And, and we now work by the sweat of our brow and thorns and briars grow and things don't work the way they ought to because we live in this fallen world, but we're still created to work. When we work, we fulfill the purpose for which we were created. Not only were we created to work, we were also recreated to work. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says that God did a work in us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're created for work. We're recreated for work. Work is supposed to be good. And there's work that we are called to do. Now, the work that Nehemiah was calling them to, to do, the good work was very clear. There's a wall that's broken down. It's going to be rebuilt. The, the work was explicit. What is the work that's being mentioned here in Ephesians 2 verse 10? What are these good works? Well, we need to fulfill the purpose. What is the mission that we are on? The mission that we are on is very clear. Jesus has given it to us, and it's on the banners on either side of, of the stage here today, that we are to fulfill the Great Commission. Our work is to make disciples of all nations. 
That is, our, that is our work, and we need to be spending ourselves doing the good work. Are you spending yourself doing the work of making disciples? And we're told how we're supposed to do the work in the spirit of the great commandment. Loving God and loving our neighbors. That is the good work that we have been called to do. Let us rise up and build. Let's do the good work that God has entrusted to us. And so Nehemiah has made the request to the king and he's seen God be in control of that. He's done the research of the wall. He didn't take for granted that God was in control. He knew he still had a part to play. And then he called the workforce. He recruited them. And God showed that he was in control, that this stranger showed up. He had been there barely longer than 48 hours. He gives them one speech and they're all like, let's rise up and build. And now... One last obstacle for him to face. It's responding to opposition. We see the response to opposition in verse 19 and 20. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, notice how there's mocking, they're laughing, they're jeering. And they say, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Not only, are, not only are they mocking them, they are lying through their teeth. Sanballat and, and Tobiah, they're the, they're the guys that saw the letter from King Artaxerxes. They knew that Nehemiah had authorization to do what he was doing. And so they were telling a flat out lie to try to discourage the people to try to undermine Nehemiah's leadership. They knew full well that they weren't rebelling against the king, but they just lied. And here's Nehemiah's response. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Notice how Nehemiah he draws a dividing line. In the church of Jesus Christ, there needs to be a dividing line. These are those who are in, and these are those who are out. Nehemiah doesn't play around here. Would it have been strategically beneficial to try to win Sanballat over? I mean, clearly he's an influential leader. Wouldn't it have been better to try to make Tobiah feel like he's part of the team? And this is a strategy that we have seen Christians use to the detriment of the church time and time again. To try to wed something that is completely anti-Christian with Christianity. And to try to say, hey, we all believe the same thing, or at the very core, you know, we all hold these things in common. Maybe we can compromise. Maybe we can meet each other halfway. That wasn't Nehemiah's way. He said, listen, you're either for us or against us. And clearly you're against us, and so you have no claim. You have no right. I also love the way that Nehemiah responds to the, responds to the accusation that they were rebelling against the king. He didn't pull out the letter again. He didn't drop Artaxerxes' name. This is the name that he drops. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Why? Because he knew that God was in control. And we, his servants, will arise and build. 
Now listen, that's the end of the chapter, but that's not the end of the story of Sambalad and Tobiah. Uh, they're going to kind of resurface again and again and again. The opposition continues, and Nehemiah continues to never give up because he knew that the God of heaven will make us prosper. He knew that God was in control. And he had a group of people who had now had a vision of what God could do. And they knew that God's good hand was upon them. And because they knew that God was in control and his good hand was upon them, they then strengthened their hands for the work. And may we as a church, may we understand that God's good hand is with us and that what's happening here is not normal and it can't be explained by any other means other than God is in it, that his hand is with us and that we need to be ready, recognizing that God's hand is working to strengthen our hands to do the work. And we know Jesus has said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That Jesus is in control and that we can trust him. And that no power, no enemy, no authority can stop God from accomplishing his purpose in our lives as individuals and our lives as the church of Jesus Christ. His hand is on us. We need to strengthen our hands, roll up our sleeves and be ready to do the work knowing That God is in control and that our work cannot fail because God cannot fail us. And that is how we never give up. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. We recognize that you are in complete control. Control over all things. And God, we saw Nehemiah systematically work his way through uh, relationship difficulties, political difficulties, logistical difficulties, Lord. All knowing that your hand was on him. And God, whatever difficulties we may be facing as individuals, whatever difficulties you have in front of us as a church, Lord, no one here has an individual problem, Lord. If anyone here has a problem or a struggle or facing opposition, that is our problem that we as a church need to carry together. We are to bear one another's burdens. And God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give each and every one of us a sense of your sovereignty, of your providence over our lives. And God, that we would strengthen our hands to do the work that you have given us to do. And God, the only way that we can strengthen our hands is by understanding that your hand is on us for good. And so God, we thank you that in Christ and in Christ alone, we can set our hope and that we can know that we will never give up because in Christ we know that you will never give up on us. And so God, we pray, Lord, we pray that you would instill in us, God, a confidence and a courage, Lord, knowing that you are for us and that you are with us. And so God, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, asking that you would work so powerfully. It's in his strong name that we pray. If you agree, say amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.